Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cargo planes played a crucial role in getting supplies to the front lines in Vietnam. American pilots had to land heavy, laden-down aircraft in remote areas far from existing airstrips. They couldn't touch down on rough, dusty terrain, and constructing permanent runways out of concrete was impractical and slow. The answer was simple. Big sheets of corrugated aluminium that could be driven to the makeshift airstrips. Weighing about the same as a small adult, they were light enough that a few burly soldiers could lay them down without heavy machinery, but sturdy enough for large planes to land on. The mats were woven together to make runways nearly two miles long. Decades later, surplus mats were put to use nearer to home. They stood upright to form a barrier along America's southern border. Many are still there today. Any piece of corrugated sheet metal on the Mexican border was probably once destined for the battlefields of Vietnam. The remnants of an old defeat marking the site of a current crisis that's becoming harder to solve. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what's happening at the US-Mexico border? Vaccinated travelers can now visit America for the first time since the pandemic began. At the southern border, legal crossings have only just restarted. But this year, Border Patrol agents have arrested more people crossing illegally than at any time in the past 20 years. President Biden promised to undo his predecessor's immigration policies. But the situation on the ground is out of control. How do you solve a problem like the US-Mexico border? Joining me to figure this out are, as ever, John Fasman, the US digital editor, Charlotte Howard, the New York bureau chief, and this episode also guest stars Alexandra Suich Bass, who covers Texas, California, and tech for The Economist, and has been reporting on what's going on at the southern border recently. Alexandra, welcome. How are you doing? What's going on in Dallas? Doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I'm being allowed to to kind of crash a, a weekly party, which is always fun. Thank you. Uh, You're most welcome. Charlotte, how are you doing? What's the word in New York? I'm doing well. It's great to see Alexandra. And I have been listening to the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who's um, on trial for having killed people during the protests of 2020, he alleges in self-defense. Yeah, that's a fascinating trial. And I think it's something we may be talking about on next week's podcast. John, how are you doing? How are things in your part of New York State? Things are good. I was back in New York yesterday. I was in the office. It was wonderful to see 
crowded midtown streets, and I was actually happy to be on a crowded subway train. Everyone was masked up, but it feels like New York is coming back, is vibrant, that more and more people are going out, and it, uh, it's starting to feel like the New York of 2019. Well, that's good to hear. Alexandra, we've got a lot to discuss in this episode, so why don't you kick it off for us? You've been down in Arizona, or I suppose from where you are in Texas, west in Arizona, uh, reporting from the border there. What did you find when you were on that trip? I was last on the border in March, and it feels like a lot was changing. And the question that so many people have that I'm often asked is, what exactly is happening on the border and what are Biden's border policies? And your view of reality is very different. If you're glued to Fox News on a nightly basis, you have the sense that the border is being completely overrun, that Biden has open border policies. If you talk to immigrant rights groups, they say that the policies are very restrictive, that asylum seekers aren't being allowed in. Border Patrol has a very different perspective, too. So I really wanted to go and find out what the reality was on the ground. The big picture is that uh, we are seeing a record number of of attempted border crossings. Um, The number of border crossers is the highest in 21 years. But what's really new is that the result of outcomes for migrants are becoming more random than they've ever been. Whether you're let in depends on a whole variety of factors, such as your country of origin, your family status, whether you're single or you have young children, where you try to cross, and then random factors that are completely out of your control on a day-to-day basis, like whether or not there's room to take you in and detain you um, where you're crossing on that day. So I think the biggest story of 2021 is not what gets the most play, which is the high number of people coming across. In fact, it's the diversity of origins of people who are coming across. So it used to be Mexicans and people from Northern Triangle countries of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras who were um, the majority of people coming across. We've seen a huge uptick in Colombians, Brazilians, Haitians, Ecuadorians, Cubans, uh, even Russians. Uh, We saw 4,000 try to come across the southern border this past year compared to 21 in 2019. It's a story of diversity of origins, and that's making it very hard for the Biden administration to figure out what to do because it's a lot harder to return people from South America or even farther afield than it is Mexicans and Central Americans. I spent some time with Border Patrol when I was on the Arizona border near Tucson. So there's a little plastic bag in there if you need it. Oh, gosh. Thank you. <laughs> people, Do people throw up a lot on these? Well, I've had, I've had two incidents okay. already. So. Every workday, Adolfo Hernandez flies a helicopter along America's border with Mexico near Tucson, Arizona. He's a pilot with Air and Marines Operators, a division of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP. This is a region where border crossers go to great lengths to try and pass undetected even wearing carpet underneath their shoes to disguise their footprints. Troy, On the 262-mile-long stretch that's known as the Tucson Sector, Adolfo is CBP's eyes in the air. Often he'll be helping his earthbound colleagues locate people who have crossed illegally and are trying to avoid apprehension. Other times, he's flying rescue missions, scoping out the exact location of a migrant who has dialed 911 in distress. With long stretches of desert and soaring, rugged mountains, the train is unremittingly tough, and it can be deadly, 
People often get injured or run out of water or energy on their days long journey by foot. Now, the other night, there was uh, someone that needed to be rescued on top of the mountain and nobody could get to him. So uh, it, was, it was cold that night and um, I flew just to make sure he was still alive. I could see the light from his cell phone and um, obviously I couldn't see him, but. You know, I, I radioed, I let uh, the Air Coordination Center know, hey, you got somebody who's still alive up here. So the next day, they sent agents up to, to bring him down. Sometimes people don't realize that whatever happens in the border, you know, has repercussions to the rest of the country. Because right here in Sassy, we're in the middle of nowhere in the desert. So people that are crossing here are not staying here. They're going into the interior of the country. They're going into our neighborhoods. On the ground, everything looks different than from the air. And here the wall makes the demarcation of where America ends and Mexico begins much clearer. Jesus Vasa Vilbaso from Border Patrol was my guide by car. There's not much on here, nothing but desert. So uh, in order for somebody to get to the next town, per se, it's approximately 45 miles from the border. Oh, OK. We have a few ranches all around, dispersed around the area, but not much on here. So that's what's so dangerous about crossing through here, that once you get to the United States in this part of the border, then you still have at least four days walking. So this is where the fence ends. So they were supposed to continue this fence, you know, all the way to the Tohono O'odham Biden halted construction on his first day in office. Here, the 30-foot tall wall went up very quickly in Trump's last few months, and it feels like it was abandoned just as suddenly. Well, everything got stopped, you know. So now, I mean, so basically you just see this dramatic end to the fence or the wall, mm -hmm. as you say, and then it's just gravel and rocks and grass and, and desert nothing. and there's nothing. So people... There's not, even, there's not even a fence here. The area was electrified, but only half a dozen lights were put in place. So the whole area is dark at night. There are gaps in the wall where floodgates were supposed to be put in, but never were. For right now, we don't have anything. It's just... Desert. Like everyone, Jesus doesn't know what's going to happen next and if Biden will ever complete the project. Alexandra, as you said to begin with, if you're a Fox News watcher, you're under the impression that the border is overrun, that there are hordes of people coming across. If you're a Democrat, if you're not a Fox News watcher, I think most Americans think that maybe there isn't such a great problem at the border. So what do the numbers say about what's happening at the moment before we go any further? So the official numbers show the highest number of encounters with Border Patrol on record. And it was over 1.7 million this fiscal year. There's a slight technicality to that because 
Title 42, which we'll speak about later. It's a Trump-era public health law that's being used to expel so many people who are apprehended by Border Patrol or turn themselves in immediately, and they're not being processed or prosecuted. So that's encouraging repeated attempts to try and cross into America. So that 1.7 million encounters represents the same people trying to make the crossing multiple times. The reality is that it's probably the highest number of people that we've seen in 21 years, since the early 2000s. But again, a much more diverse group of people. Uh, In the early 2000s, it was mainly Mexicans. Now it's Mexicans, South Americans, Central Americans, and people from even farther afield. And Alexandra, what happens to people once they are apprehended? There are wildly different outcomes. So it depends on who you are, your country of origin, whether you're a family unit, and also whether or not you're seeking asylum, and that's key. So if you are an unaccompanied child coming into America, you are taken in, processed, um, and then very quickly, because of the young age of these kids are being released from detention rapidly. Um, And so they're either being placed in foster care, or if they have a family member in the U.S., they're placed with their family member. If you're a family with young kids seeking asylum, depending, again, on whether there's border patrol capacity you're taken in, you could be detained and then ultimately sent back to your home country. So there are multiple ways in which you can both be taken in and be processed. And again, I think that the diversity of outcomes is part of what's leading to confusion about whether or not people are coming in. And the fact that some people are who have kids of a young or tender age or are crossing at a place that doesn't have capacity to detain and expel someone, they just are let in with potentially a notice to appear for a court date um, for their immigration proceeding. That news is fueling people's perspective that there's actually a chance that they can get in. And so that's encouraging people to try their luck at the border. And smugglers are using that information to their advantage to try and bring people to the border and make as much money from the chaotic situation as possible. That's really interesting, Alexandra, because the vice president, Kamala Harris, essentially said, don't come to migrants. They've been trying to put out this message that people should remain in their home countries and trying to find solutions to help people perhaps apply for visas in their home countries, et cetera, before making this dangerous trip to the border. It sounds like that has had absolutely no impact. Is that right? I think what people are hearing are the stories of people who have been led across and Biden's promises to adopt a more humane and fair immigration system, they're not hearing the admonitions not to come. And I do think there's a really important distinction to draw here between asylum seekers and then just people who are trying to cross the border illegally. Right now, under Title 42, even asylum seekers who have a credible fear, whether it's you know family members or, the, or themselves being threatened by gangs or the risk of assassination, these people are coming. And it is U.S. law to grant them a credible fear interview um, and the potential to come into the country. It's very contentious right now with the Biden administration and immigrant activists who say that it's the U.S.'s obligation to at least give asylum seekers the chance to seek asylum and not 
turn them away, expel them back to Mexico, and put them in the state of limbo and uncertainty without granting them the opportunity to proceed with an asylum claim. And so I think it is really important to emphasize that so many people are asylum seekers because that's part of why they are choosing to leave. It's not like they hear from the vice president or the Department of Homeland Security and hear that their odds of coming in might not be that great, so they're just going to wait. Because a lot of these people don't have the option of waiting in their home country, and conditions are so bad that it's worth the very long odds and horribly dangerous journey to come over. Well, Alexandra, we're going to let you get back to your reporting. Thank you so much. If you want to read Alexandra's full story. It's in this week's Economist, for which you'll need a subscription. Uh, Alexandra, we'll catch you on a podcast soon. Thank you. See you soon. In a moment, we'll go back to a time when a Democratic president talked tough on immigration. First, a reminder, you can get lots more brilliant Economist stories and analysis if you subscribe. This week, in addition to reading Alexandra's full report from the border, Lexington is on the growing number of Hispanics voting Republican. And we ask why CEOs are so weird with apologies to our bosses, Zani and Lara. And also this week, I have to mention, there's an Economist film out on Russian dissidents, which is well worth a watch. It's going out on TV in the UK. And if you're in the US, I expect you'll be able to find it on YouTube. If you want to subscribe, then Checks and Balance listeners will find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. In April 2016, Donald Trump was on the verge of capturing the Republican nomination for president. His pledge to build a great, great wall on the border with Mexico had helped fence in the rest of the field. At a rally in Indianapolis, the husband of his eventual opponent took to the stage. You know, and you can talk all you want to about how wonderful it'll be when we put a wall up across the Rio Grande. Let me tell you something, folks. You can put that wall up. It's physically possible. Then why don't we put up a wall with the Canadian border? There's a lot of foreigners over there, too. (laughs) Then we can put up a seawall on the Atlantic, a seawall on the Pacific. Bill Clinton's mockery delighted the partisan crowd that night. What he and they were happy to forget was his own history of barrier building. George Bush Sr. approved the first 14 miles of fencing to stop illegal crossings on the southern border, but it was completed on Clinton's watch. The 42nd president adopted a tough tone on immigration. The one election loss of his career, his 1980 bid to be re-elected as Arkansas's governor, was partly due to his decision to allow Cuban refugees to be settled in the state. From the first year of his presidency, Clinton was attuned to the public's growing opposition to immigration. But we also know that under the pressures that we face today, We can't afford to lose control of our own borders or to take on new financial burdens at a time when we are not adequately providing for the jobs, the health care, and the education of our own people. Therefore, immigration must be a priority for this administration. And by the time of his 1995 State of the Union address, chastened by the Republicans' triumph at the previous year's midterms and embarking on the move to the center that would help him win re-election, Clinton sounded almost Trumpian. All Americans, not only in the states most heavily affected, but in every place in this country, are rightly disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. The jobs they hold might otherwise be held by citizens or legal immigrants. 
The public service they use impose burdens on our taxpayers. That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more by hiring a record number of new border guards, by deporting twice as many criminal aliens as ever before, by cracking down on illegal hiring, by barring welfare benefits to illegal aliens. We are a nation of immigrants, but we are also a nation of laws. It is wrong and ultimately self-defeating for a nation of immigrants to permit the kind of abuse of our immigration laws we have seen in recent years, and we must do more to stop it. He did do more. Clinton oversaw the militarization of the southern border, deploying more border agents and building more fencing in California, Arizona, and Texas. By the time Donald Trump took office, there were already 654 miles of barriers along the southern border. Most of this was a result of George W. Bush's bipartisan Secure Fence Act of 2006, voted for by senators including Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Construction continued when Obama became president. Donald Trump's rhetoric gave him political ownership of the border wall. But there's been a barrier between the US and Mexico for decades, a broadly supported, if blunt, part of a much wider set of border security measures. John, let's start with a bit of border history. Prior to 2001 and the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the southern border was somewhat fluid. I mean, if you go right back to the 50s, you had a lot of Mexican guest workers coming into the US and working, doing backbreaking jobs under the Bracero program. That then comes to an end. But there's not much in the way of border infrastructure until, as we heard in that package, you know, until the 90s. And during that period between the 50s and the 90s, the border's quite fluid, isn't it? People coming and going across um, fairly freely. And then in 2001, as part of the ramping up of homeland security, Congress finds a huge amount of money for customs and border protection. And then this border, which had been somewhat fluid, becomes much harder. Is that is that just about right? I think that's just about right. There was always a sort of bipartisan understanding. You mentioned the Secure Fence Act, that America had to secure its border, and that ideally there would also be a path to citizenship for people who had been here for a long time. That still is sort of the broad contours of any grand bargain on immigration. You know, the grand bargain has now eluded, I think, four presidents. I think the problem now is that because Donald Trump was so vociferously not just pro-border security, but I think it's fair to say anti-immigrant, anti-foreigner, that Democrats have felt obligated to take the opposite tack. And that is both electorally dangerous and it also just as a matter of policy doesn't make much sense, right? Obviously, we should not rip children away from parents at the border as a deterrent. That's gratuitous and cruel. But America is, as Bill Clinton said, a nation of laws and laws have to be enforced. And Americans have every right to decide for themselves who comes into their country and why. But I think what we have now is a really, really dysfunctional political conversation in which one party does not want to talk about letting anyone in at all, except in the vaguest possible way. And the other party does not really want to talk about enforcement at all, except in the vaguest possible way. 
It's a difficult message to give to Democrats that having a humane immigration policy and a secure border probably means admitting more legal immigrants, but also deporting more undocumented immigrants. I mean, practically speaking, no one is going to deport 11 million people who are undocumented and who have been here for decades in some cases. But in order to get the credibility that they need to craft a sort of more humane border policy, they also have to reassure people that the border is secure. And that probably means letting fewer people in that way and deporting more people after they fail their credible fear interview, for instance. That sounds like a really rational answer, doesn't it, John? But I remember reporting on deportations under the Obama administration. The Obama administration deported an enormous number of people, way more than any previous administrations. Deportations at one point were running at over 100,000 people a year, which is quite a logistical enterprise apart from anything else. And Barack Obama thought that by doing that, by being tough in border enforcement, he would create the political space necessary for the kind of deal you describe. And he didn't find any or he didn't find enough partners on the uh, Republican side in in Congress to make that stick. So I think Democrats have been a bit burned by that experience, even though I, I completely agree that the contours of the deal you described sound really sensible. I think that points to the problem here in some ways, because there's this fundamental question of how you have a immigration policy that is both practical and moral. And you hear Democrats repeatedly, and I think rightly, framing this question in moral terms. So when there was the U.S. Border Patrolman on horseback shown whipping a Haitian migrant, Biden said, it's simply not who we are. And Jen Psaki, the press secretary, when she's speaking about immigration, she talks about making a system that is, quote, more moral, humane, and workable. And I think the natural question is, what is a policy that's both humane and moral? as well as respects national borders? And secondarily, is there any chance of that policy becoming law? Biden did propose immigration legislation earlier this year. It's just completely dead on arrival. And this question in some ways becomes, this moral question in some ways becomes most extreme, I think, in the litigation over the claims, the hundreds of claims, nearly a thousand claims filed so far from families that were separated during the Trump administration. You had children who were placed in foster care and federal detention centers, and they're seeking, the families are seeking compensation for that trauma. How do you put a price on that? I was talking to James Astle, our Lexington columnist, about that compensation claim the other day. And I think the politics of it are really interesting and really illustrate what both of you have said. So it seems quite likely that the federal government is going to have to pay compensation to families for separating them from their children. And I think many people would say that's wrong. A lot of people would say it's absolutely right, both you know, kind of morally and as a matter of law. And if you're a Republican or if you're Donald Trump, you respond to that by railing against the judges. If you're a Democrat, if you're Joe Biden, you may not like it. You may realize that it's politically terrible. But if you're Joe Biden or a Democrat, you're not going to go after the judiciary for doing what is, frankly, the judiciary's job. And so the result of that, net-net, is that as a Democrat, you get painted as, as soft on immigration. It's very tough for them. Okay, let's pause there. We'll be back in a moment to hear from someone who's working with migrants at the border. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A little earlier, we talked with Alexandra about Title 42, which is a controversial Trump administration public health measure which is still in place. Originally designed as a public health tool to quickly expel those from countries with high COVID rates, its critics say it's now being used to indiscriminately and unfairly remove migrants. When she was at the border, Alexandra spoke to Gia Del Pino from the Kino Border Initiative. People are just stuck in limbo. They are stuck at the border. They're seeking asylum, but they have no process to seek asylum. There's no process to request asylum. They can't even approach a port of entry um, to request asylum and then start the process of doing the credible fear interview. Um, there's no such process right now at the moment due to Title 42. So that just leaves a lot of people stuck at the border um, in a really precarious and, and deadly and sometimes and dangerous situation. What are you hearing about the future of Title 42 and when it's going to be revoked? It's uncertain. In fact, um, a lot of the immigrant advocates uh, met with the White House I believe two Saturdays ago to just get a little bit more clarity and transparency over when these policies will be repealed or or terminated. Um, And there's no clarity on the matter. In fact, they ended up walking out from this virtual meeting from the White House. Um, Which side walked out? All the immigrant advocates. So, and that's because the White House uh, is reinstating MPP or the Remain in Mexico policy now in mid-November and there's no clarity as to when Title 42 is going to be um, repealed. And with that said, on November 8th, they're reopening the border to those who, uh, all non-essential travelers who can show proof of vaccination, which, you know, <laughs> completely highlights a kind of racist and contradictory policy, which doesn't enable migrants who can show proof of vaccination and negative tests to even try or even get close to a port of entry, yet allow others who are vaccinated and have other types of documentation to cross the border. Um, if and whenever they can. People are really tired at the border. They're losing a lot of hope. Um, And these are families who are just escaping unimaginable violence and um, conditions of poverty. And the fact that they have to live with that much instability and uncertainty um, is really crippling. Mm I think people expected um, the Biden administration to be different on immigration policy and border policy than the Trump administration. Has that played out in the reality of life on the border, or does it feel very similar to the Trump administration? Oh, absolutely. It feels the same. And, uh, you know, know, in fact, a lot of the migrants told us that they, they fled with the hope that with the renewed hope that this administration would be different because biden a lot of his campaign promised you know a reinstatement of asylum protections for folks and he has not followed through on those promises so it's really demoralizing for people and is everyone sees it for what it is he's continuing these trump era policies because he has no choice or because he's choosing to do that like how do you interpret his political decisions He has the ability to revoke many of these policies. He has the executive order. The fact that he's not doing it says a lot. And and tell me about your opinion about him visiting uh, the border, whether it's Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California. Um, He has has not been. Do you think that that would make a difference? Absolutely. 
um, the migrants who are organizing here on the ground in Nogales are constantly welcoming Biden and all kinds of Congress people to come. In fact, we've had visitations from staffers, not the congressional members, but for Biden to come and see the reality on the ground, to speak to the folks who are most affected by these policies, who are affected by this violence, who are fleeing for their lives, it would be impossible not to touch his heart. <laughs> and not to make some of these urgent and necessary changes and to restore some of these protections that are uh, mandated by international law and our law, constitutional law. So I think it's completely necessary. And he's more than welcome and always invited to come visit Kino Border Initiative and speak to the migrants directly. So, Charlotte, Joe Biden is under fire from the right for supposedly letting the border get out of his control. People pointing towards those statistics, which show that the number of illegal border crossings is its highest in 20 years. That doesn't look good for him. On the other hand, he's also under fire from the left, from people who say that his immigration policy is effectively no different from Donald Trump's. What has Joe Biden promised to do and what has he done so far? Joe Biden promised a lot on the campaign trail. And in some cases, he's made changes. In others, he hasn't, for a variety of reasons, as we can discuss. But he did end the travel ban on Muslim-majority countries to help those undocumented immigrants who are already within the United States. He said about ending big raids on workplaces, giving lawyers to kids facing deportation, trying to rein in ICE arrests to prioritize only people who are a risk to public safety. But he faces criticism from a lot of people who say that he could have moved faster to effectuate certain policies. So, for instance, with refugees, he raised the cap from 15,000 to 62,500 in May. And then in it wasn't until September that he raised it further to 125,000 people. But even when he does move, he's sometimes limited practically. So the number of people who can resettle refugees shrank during the Trump administration. It takes a while to build up that staff again, and that can form a bottleneck. I think the thing that's probably most interesting is Title 42, which we've heard about, which lets a public health emergency send people away without a hearing before a judge. And you had a senior State Department lawyer resigned over this. And there was a memo that was published that said, we came into this administration to give the American people a government as good as our national values, and arguing that the administration should revise the policy, especially as it affects Haitian migrants, to a policy that one that is, quote, worthy of this nation we love. So again, you see this being placed in really stark moral terms by uh, those who are very frustrated with the state of progress. Part of the issue is factors beyond the control of what anyone in the United States can do, right? Haiti's president was assassinated. Brazil is in the throes of sort of incompetent presidency wracked by COVID. The Northern Triangle countries are still unstable. All of these are factors that push people out to the United States, which is close by and rich, and they're going to keep coming. So the problem seems, to a certain extent, insoluble. And what that means is the Republicans will probably run on this in 2022 and 2024. I mean, I don't know that they will have any substantive solutions other than vindictiveness, which is what Trump offered. But it really is a politically tenuous position for Democrats to be in. The border is a very difficult problem. Solving it is going to take a lot of money and goodwill on both sides of the political aisle. And those are both just in short supply right now. 
I'm going to hold my hand up and say, I don't have great ideas for how to fix this problem, but you two are way smarter than I am. So if you were sitting in the White House, what would you be doing? There's a long, long pause that uh, <laughs> is taking place right now as John Fasman and I stare blankly into each other's eyes electronically. But I think there are a few different questions, right? One is what we could do, what one would do if you were to have a congressional body that was interested in passing immigration reform. So there's, you know, the comprehensive immigration legislation that has been talked about for decades that is still elusive. Um, And the contours of that are relatively clear and not that dissimilar from what the Biden administration has proposed already, which is trying to provide a pathway for legal citizenship, um, increasing the number of visas available for people to come to the United States to work, um, trying to have a more secure border. The entirely separate question is what to do given the political constraints and what you can do through executive action, et cetera. And there are suggestions there that I won't pretend that I've come up with, but different people at think tanks put put forward, which include providing uh, more counsel to migrants, keeping migrants not in restrictive detention centers, but tracking them in different ways to have them show up for hearings, but not keeping them in jails, essentially, helping people apply for visas in their home countries, bulking up the court system so asylum cases can be heard. Um, But as we've discussed, these are all really tricky for practical and legal and political reasons, which is why they don't happen more quickly. I think more consular services in unstable nearby countries is a very good idea. More money to the immigration court system so that you can process people who come in faster. You can get the credible fear interview done faster. Um, and all of these things are things that I think Congress would have to appropriate money for, though, which which suggests that the chances of any of them getting done are actually quite, quite remote. I think the solution to Biden's political problem might be, and show up and take a breath here, to build the wall, to build Trump's wall. I mean, if Trump does run again in 2024... Whoever he runs against, he's going to run on immigration, right? He's going to say, the border's out of control. Elect me, I'll build the wall. That will be somewhat popular with a lot of folks in the Midwest who Democrats need to hang on to, to oversimplify things a bit. I think if Biden or whoever the Democratic candidate is, is able to stand up on stage and say, hey, you know what? I've already built the wall, so you can't out-tough me on that. That would go some way towards shoring up the Democratic candidate's position in 2024. It's not a policy I like. The Economist is not pro-walls. We'd like to see much more legal immigration to America. But I've come round to the view, having you know been sceptical of this, that that might be the best option for Biden politically. I mean, you could argue that it's a waste of money, uh, and I think there's something to that. But nevertheless, as we heard in the history part of the show, successive Democratic presidents have built bits of barrier, bits of wall on the southern border. I think maybe that might be the solution to Biden's problem here, or at least part of it, to the the political problem. As both of you mentioned, the fact that asylum law was designed in the 1950s, it's a lot easier to travel around these days. You know, there will you know, America shares a very long land border um, with a country that's significantly poorer uh, than than it is. Um, so there's a limit to the degree to which anybody can control the border in the way that Fox News uh, would like it to be controlled. But I think that might be one way to go. I say that reluctantly. It's not a bad idea if it were coupled with an enormous increase in the number of legal visas given out annually. I can see that being politically palatable. I mean, both sides would have to swallow something they don't like. 
you know, again, it'll probably never happen. And I am sort of instinctively repulsed by the wall for the for the same reasons you are. Charlotte, you're looking at me like I'm bonkers, which I probably am. Um, I feel like that's how I look at you sort of 90% of the time. But yeah, I don't know about that as a policy, but let me sleep on it. I feel like this is an episode that's going to elicit lots of views from our listeners. So perhaps we'll have good ideas from, from you all who are listening to us. Well, one of those kind listeners wrote in and complained about the way that I have a tendency to say thanks both to you a lot. So I'm no longer doing that. So so no thank you to either of you. Before I let you go, however, it is quiz time as usual. The Economist wrote about immigration from Mexico in August 1981, telling the story of a man who was arrested crossing into the US carrying 900 fake social security cards. President Franklin Roosevelt signed the Social Security Act in 1935. But of the 48 that existed at the time, can you name the only two states that never voted for him in a presidential election? Ooh. Maine and Vermont. You're just trying to pick states that are home to lots of curmudgeons? No, like ancestrally Republican states. Oh, that's a more intellectual answer. What are you going for, Charlotte? Um, maybe, for the sake of being arbitrary, New Hampshire and New Jersey? I'm afraid Fasman is dead right. Yes. The two states were Maine and Vermont. Yeah, there you go. So good. So good. Very impressive. Alaska and Hawaii also never voted for FDR in his four election victories, but that's because they didn't obtain statehood until after his death. Question number two. FDR was an avid collector of what? Cigarette holders? Um, I'm going to go with some kind of cup, like a sil- some sorts of silver cup. I like that. It's wrong, however. He was an avid stamp collector. Apparently he collected nearly a million of them and spent time with his stamps every day. He once said that, quote, I owe my life to my hobbies, especially stamp collecting. So there. Hmm. I think that maybe the answer to America's problems is just to pose them in quiz format to John Fasman. And something about that <laughs> will just elicit the correct answer to all of our, all of our nation's woes. We're doomed. Well, John, congratulations on that stellar quiz performance. That's it for this episode. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 